Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. Today's moment comes from Bach's Inventions for Keyboard, invention number 12. When Bach was about 35 years old, he began compiling a collection of short keyboard works for his oldest son, Wilhelm Friedman Bach. We know that they were intended as exercises. It's called the Klavierbüchlein, the little book of keyboard music. The keyboard little book. It is filled with inventive compositions that stand on their own right, apart from being exercises. The most famous exercises or short compositions in the book are probably the inventions. Actually, it depends on who you ask, Alex, because some people might say that the minuet in G major is the most famous, although he might not have written it, he just might have copied that. Yeah. Certain things that would become part of the well-tempered clavier could possibly be called the most famous, especially what would become the prelude in C major, which was our sixth episode of our first season in this podcast. We covered that. And a great fun fact that we know about this manuscript is that Bach included an ornamentation guide in the book for his son, or actually for his students later, he would reuse this, this book. That is to say that there are a lot of natural times in Baroque keyboard music where you would have to know how to play things and decorate things that are above and beyond what's notated in a musical score. And usually you don't get a guide on how to do that unless you're reading from a more modern edition. But Bach this time wrote a guide in there because this was an educational tool. And Bach never does this in any of his other works, keyboard or otherwise. This is the only one. This is the only time he puts the educational note in there. Right. And it's it's not just a written-out explanation of how to do a trill or a mordant or a turn, but it is a graph that includes notation for each of these different ornaments, which he called manierian, or like manner mannerism, basically, mannerisms. It, it, this would have been, yeah, this would have been common knowledge to people then, but it's great for us, because now we know exactly how Bach one of these played. Yeah. And so they've become now a standard part of the keyboard training repertoire on piano, even though they would have been written and used on a pre-piano instrument. I've always wondered why they were called inventions, because there are musical forms that Bach used, like aria or fugue or prelude, minuet, you know, all the dance ones etc., etc., that other composers also used. Invention, when you're talking about the inventions, you're basically just talking about the Bach inventions. There's not too many others unless they're directly inspired by him. And it wasn't until watching the companion video to the Netherlands Bach Society release 
or rather re-release of their recordings of the inventions that I learned this information. Six years ago, the Netherlands Box Society released videos of these inventions being played, and they had a program where young people and children came to play each one, and they divided them up amongst these young performers. They have re-released this video uh, this year with some companion videos as well from that masterclass training program that took place six years ago where these young people played these inventions. Many of them for the first time actually playing a harpsichord, which is super interesting. I mean, most of them were playing piano as piano students. And this was their first chance to go to the Netherlands to go learn how to play a harpsichord, which is very different, a very different feel than playing a piano. And they knew the music on the piano, but that's very different than playing it on the harpsichord. So we think that the term invention is a reference to rhetoric or the the preparation of a speech, for example, because the Bach inventions, even though they're intended as keyboard exercises for the left and right hand, they're also compositional sort of little nuggets that are a great example of composing something with very limited material, which Bach was always so adept at. The most famous one, the, the first invention in C major, is a great example. opening motif is inverted and transformed as it goes and you could really say that every single note that follows comes from the first the first moment really yeah it might just be one of the most pared down and concise versions of the thesis statement that we state a lot on this podcast which is that Bach was very economical with his musical material. Yeah, exactly. This is a great example for people learning in like music theory classes as well as piano classes. But also, I would say that this is required learning for people who want to write music. Invention number one in C major, especially that one, because it shows us how with just one motif, eight notes, you can spin out an idea into an entire artistic piece from just that one thing there's no there's no wasted material and it it sort of blossoms like a flower all from the one seed of that first let's call it uh the invention but that's kind of confusing the first eight notes you know (laughs) the first seed of invention and that philosophy is so sturdy and foolproof it's it's hard to execute in real life but again here's our like little corner of advice for composers and songwriters, but I'd say, try this. If you haven't tried writing music this way and you're stuck, try this. Try coming up with a really basic idea or phrase or a couple of notes. Could It could have words or depending on if you're using words or it could just be the notes or or something. Don't worry about chords. Just think about a melodic something simple, just a little fragment, and see what you can do with it. Can you move it up? Can you move it down? Can you flip it around? It doesn't matter if the listener knows that everything is from that one thing or how much is derived from it. It's a great way to generate musical material. It's cheap. It's free. You already wrote it. You just need to learn how to transform it. And that's not how, that's not how very many people write music anymore. Yeah. And that makes me sad.
because this is a great way to write music. Yeah, a lot of people repeat music that they've written verbatim. That's true. It's a lot more rare to see the transformations happen. Yeah. Maybe it's because it's a little bit technical and academic and maybe it's because we know that it's not always heard by the listener as a transformation because maybe it's too transformed. Arguably, you could go too far with this, but I, I think if it's well worth it, if, even if it's just as an exercise. The place you do see that still is in film music and music for media, TV, video games, all this stuff, anything that has musical score. You still do see a lot of and it is classical in nature, right? Comes from classical music tradition, but the transformation of of melodies and themes, especially character themes. Yeah. There's something so organic and natural about it. And organic, I mean almost like like a plant, you know, like just a seed and then everything comes from it. Yeah. And that's why I like to use the analogy of melody as character. I don't think I've actually said this on the podcast yet, but this is how I think of it when I compose. I really like stories and storytelling and Composing is a sort of abstract version of that some way. Melodies are like characters to me. The setting, or the analogy gets stretched a little too thin here, but you could take the, the rhythm as like the setting or the texture or the orchestration or whatever, or the style feels like the setting that you're setting the story in or whatever. But the melody is the character. It's kind of where the heart is, right? So like in a film score, the melody represents character a lot of times, or at least some kind of strong feeling that a character has. Yeah. And... In something more abstract like this, Bach's Inventions or any of his instrumental music, the melody is still where like the heart is of the piece. So it has to be kind of stirring and it has to be able to be transformed, to your point earlier, Christian, into these other modes so that you take this character on some kind of journey. Otherwise, it's static. And then at, usually at the end, there's some kind of recapitulation where the melody is returned to its, to its true form. Or it achieves some sort of like even more glorious transformation or whatever, you know, and in romantic music, you get you get huge epic journeys of melodies going <laughs> that, that you get to eventually to the end. But here it's a simple version of something that has a little bit of character to it that goes on a journey and then returns changed. And these are also much freer than something like that, or if even a fugue. A fugue would have a little bit more broader rules, which would also facilitate them going to certain areas as they go and then ending a certain way. Whereas these are, anything could kind of happen with these because their little nuggets of material are smaller. The main rule is that there's just one line per hand and there's like two parts. There's the right hand part and the left hand part, and that's it, and they're short. So it's almost, these are almost themselves even when they're complete, these inventions are almost like seeds of something, of some bigger forms that could exist. Your storytelling analogy leads me directly into my rhetoric point. This is something that I think a lot of music scholars believe that Bach intended to call them inventions on purpose because he was thinking of the rhetorical five canons. And this is something for any of you who have studied speech, you might know this. Mm. This was an ancient technique from Cicero, actually. So it's, it's from ancient Rome. But his five canons of rhetoric, these are, the, these are the things you should do while you develop an argument in an attempt to get a speech ready to go. The first one is inventio. 
invention. And in that one, you discover your argument and you develop it, you get it ready. And so Bach might have been thinking of the first of those five canons when he had the idea to name them this. But when you go, when you think of the other four, you realize that these are incredibly musical in their own way, even though we're not talking about speech anymore. But the second one is dispositio, which is the arrangement of ideas and organization of ideas so that they are effective. And then there's elocutio, elocution or style. Hmm. And that is how you um, present your arguments in, in terms of talking in speech. And then the fourth one is memoria, which is memory, which is memorizing your speech so that you don't use notes, which is a thing that we could tie to music sometimes, but we often still use. <laughs> we often don't do that. And then the last one is actio, which is action or delivery. And that's you actually giving the speech using ornamentation and gestures and so on. And so if you're thinking about these, I'm thinking like this also describes the process of music being composed from nothing, organized by the composer, written down by the composer, but then also passed to the performer for learning and then finally playing. So while the speech writer gets to do all five parts of this, in music I think it's divided into at least two people's jobs, the composer and the performers, and maybe more. Yeah. It's different with music. Well, and nowadays it's it's also divided in speech writing too in some circles, right? Like in politics. Oh yeah, like a speech Maybe writer, a speech yeah. writer for the president or whatever. Exactly. So that's like the composer for the performer. Yeah, the the artistic endeavor of of doing that is often requires another a specialty job to do that, and that's what they have in um, in politics. They have speech writers, professional speech writers, and then the politician themselves has to perform it, and that's like a performance, and that's a lot like music where we have a specialty composer job, but then we have the other specialty job of performing. Right, but then like we have said before, those five steps, those ancient steps of, of speech writing, it makes more sense back in the day, right? It makes more sense in Bach's time. Also, they were more trained on everything. They were polymaths. Bach was a polymath. The inventions, as you said, are educational tools as well as performance pieces, probably more geared toward edu educational tools. And yeah. He writes in the foreword, like you alluded to, he writes that this is for learning how to do two-part music. It's for it's for learning to understand the structure of two-part music. And it would have been expected for these students to be coming up with their own two and three-part pieces. Or like when given a part to complete a second part that works in counterpoint to that first part and things like that. And the, these inventions were ways to learn how to do that. Yes. And these inventions were called invencio, invention, because they were only the first step and the rest of the steps had to be taken by the student, mm. right? The student had to actio, had to perform, because the last step is delivering your speech using gestures and ornaments and so on. And that's why Bach wrote, for the only time in his entire life, a musical ornament guide, because he was trying to equip the student with tools. So Bach's pedagogical mind was was definitely at work here. I'm not sure if he considered his own inventions as high art. He probably didn't. He probably I, thought there's no way. Yeah, th he probably thought this is the this is an educational exercise and it's the first step. And I know that he thought higher of his large scale finished works and he thought of those as being the complete package along with everything. But even those are a team effort because the musicians are needed to ornament so it's all it's all part of his culture. He can't do everything in the notation. So so in a way, he never gets to the last step. I think you always have to have someone actually playing or singing. Yeah, well, it comes down to the creative types of that time 
while some were definitely better at the creative process than others, because they're all encouraged and trained to be such renaissance people, so to speak, to be such polymaths, so to speak, there was a lot less ego involved in the actual performance side of it. I'm not saying there weren't egotistical people back then, but just the idiom in which they were working didn't allow for that as much as it did later. Mm. So this was a craft for Bach. Like you're saying, Christian, it's it's a team effort between him and the performers and it, all the cantatas and, and the passions used used arrangements of old tunes also as well as, well as the, all the other musicians that are involved in a Bach performance. There's also that to think about, the fact that he was arranging all this stuff. But this is just a great example of it. It's all a craft. Things were much more... Music was much more a craft back then than an art. Yeah. The second canon is Dispositio, arrangement. Everything was free game, you know, as long as it worked well. There was no such thing as copyright. You didn't have. He didn't have that much personal ownership of his own art as we do now, post-Beethoven, I guess. But it was. It was arrangement for him. A lot of it was arranging. And he also may have been aware of the parallel between himself and his ancient predecessors, maybe. I don't know, this might be a little bit of a stretch, but he probably understood. We know he knew Latin. He was probably well-educated in Roman history. He knew Cicero as a speechwriter and um, famous orator. And he probably thought, my art has something like this, at least in a practical way. This is the first step, and so I'm going to call this invention. So of course it's no accident that the Netherlands Bach Society took the opportunity to have this project done where they recorded the inventions with younger performers. We had another request from listener Santiago for a particular moment within the invention number 12 in A major. This invention is performed by harpsichordist Pei Ching Shue, who was 13 years old at the time that this video was released. And the invention starts with both hands active right away with two motifs. Uh, sort of dancing ornamented thing on the right hand and then fast notes in the left hand there is a cycling that occurs in a lot of these inventions per measure or per time interval the second bar has the fast notes up in the right hand uh, but with a different contour an inverted contour and it trades off in this fashion everything's always overlapping and always changing slowly Sometimes the entire texture changes. There's a great moment in the middle which is our focus for today. And it's when we suddenly hear a whole big mass of fast notes, 16th notes, just coming at us. But the pattern between the hands interlocks in a very strange and pleasing way. just playing in parallel. They're almost like different uh, sized waves. The right hand is moving in a faster broken chord than the left hand is. At this point, to be technical, the right hand has a four note pattern 
against the left hand, which has a six note pattern. This is a really interesting effect, but it is also perfectly legal, used for rhythmic increase of tension. This is what we call hemiola. But we've never really seen it in this way on this podcast that we've described. I believe we have described hemiola on this podcast as two against three, when something feels like it's in the meter of three, but a musical pattern, a rhythmic pattern in there switches to two three times so that you have this this feel of two against the overall feel of three, which is a really nice temporary step up in energy. That's what's happening here, except it's much more subtle because it's so flowy. And we basically have four against six, which is two against three. In every beat, there are six notes here. One, two, three, four, five, six. So the effect of four notes against six notes to my ears is much like the effect of it, it's like a it's like a type of harmony in actual acoustic harmony the ratio of three to two is it's a musical interval in, on it in itself in terms of of waves of acoustic waves i would not like to get into that right now <laughs> yeah it's kind of a large topic <laughs> yeah but it's also not as scary as it sounds and I'm sure it'll, it'll come up again. The acoustic property of three against two is very natural in our world, right? It's it's one of the most basic ratios that there is. The only one simpler than that, I two against one. So three against two is it has sort of a flow state to it. It's very smooth, but it's also much more interesting than just one against one of every of both hands just sounding the same. And so of course these inventions are all about both hands having some sort of dialogue. Sometimes they exchange musical ideas, but in this case, they just rub against each other in this really interesting way that increases tension for a moment. And the harmony changes throughout too, which, which makes it even more interesting. It sounds much more rhythmically interesting because it has this polyrhythm, two rhythms at the same time. So whether all of this beautiful interaction between these two hands is part of the invencio portion of writing music, the invention part, or maybe it would be better to say it's the second part, dispositio, the arrangement of material. Either way, it's, it's early on in the process, and it was designed to teach how to finish that step-by-step -step process. Performing something like this is kind of like public speaking because it is also in itself an exercise in getting ready to learn bigger and harder things. It's just wild to me that he considered these as teaching materials when when they are so strong on their own, but that's why they that's why they're famous and now here is that hemiola section from the invention number 12 If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of the inventions, please see the link in the episode description to see that video that we mentioned before. 
by the Netherlands Bach Society. If you want to stay on top of A Moment of Bach and get all our new episodes every time they drop, just find us on your podcast app player and hit subscribe. Also, listener, so we are wrapping up this season soon. And just like last year, we end our seasons with what we call Bachtoberfest. Yeah, that's in two weeks. And one of the things we'll do during Bachtoberfest is take some listener questions. So if you have any questions about the show or suggestions or comments about um, episodes, etc., feel free to get in touch with us. Now, a lot of you actually have suggested your own moments that we haven't got to yet. As you know, if you've been listening to every episode, we've got to a lot of them this season, but we didn't get, we didn't manage to get through all of them because there were a lot. So don't worry, we are still getting through them all, but some of them are going to are going to go over to the next season because we didn't manage to get through all of them because we had so many, which is a great problem to have. Right, we have a few things that we kind of soft promised you, the listener, um, even back in season one that we were going to get to. We want to get to an episode on our theme music, right? The Mm -hmm. aria from the St. Matthew Passion. We want to get to an episode. Well, we hinted at some other guests that we were going to have and those will happen. (laughs) We just have to be patient with that stuff and we'll get to it in season three. Yeah, we'll talk more about that at Bachtoberfest, but that's that's exactly right. So, listener, if you want to get in touch with us, and if you want to have something read at Bachtoberfest, a question or whatever, please do so. You can use our application, our message application on our website, amomentofbach.com. You can write us at amomentofbach at gmail.com, or you can post it on one of the social media platforms. And so, Alex, what will we be doing next week? Well, next week we will take a listener request. It'll be the last one of this season, as you mentioned, Christian. And that request comes from Will, and he requested the Concerto in A Minor, BWV 1065. This is a concerto for four harpsichords Mm. based on a piece by Vivaldi. Really interesting instrumentation on this one. Until next time, enjoy those moments. Enjoy those moments.